is good to have you here this morning on this first Sunday of a new year. My name is Pastor Rich, and I'm the pastor of Karen Fellowship, and I often uh, am in the pulpit here on the Sunday after, um, after Christmas, and so it's good to be here again. You know, I spent some time this week Googling the funniest or strangest New Year's resolutions. But most of them really didn't seem very funny to me or strange, so I quickly abandoned that that search, and I have nothing to share with you about those things. But as we prepare to receive God's word for our lives today, let me give you some good news and some bad news for just a moment about all those New Year resolutions we like to make. First, the bad news. 27% of you that start today with a New Year's resolution, will break it by next Sunday. 31% of you will lose that resolution two weeks from today. By the time February 1st rolls around, 41% of you will have abandoned that resolution. And after six months, well... 55% of you are trying to figure out what to do for the rest of the year. But if you want some good news, I want to share it with you because I read this article from Jonathan Small and from from entrepreneur.com who says most New Year's resolutions fail, but here are five you can keep. So just want to give you some... Uh, help you along that path of resolutions. He says five things to do. First, write your resolution down. Because if you see it and read it, you're more likely to keep it. He said, set 30-day challenges, not 365-day goals. Want to work on it one month at a time. I love this one. Take two minutes a day to be more grateful. Two minutes. Number four, reach out to a friend every day. Do you know that we are more lonely today than we have been in any other time in the history of our nation, according to studies? And do you know that started to happen in 2014 when more people than less started to have smartphones. Think about that. Number five, he says, set realistic timelines. But anyways, as we begin, so that's, that's my five, five things to do for about New Year's resolutions. But as we begin this year, I thought it would be appropriate to go to the place in the Gospels where Jesus so clearly outlines what living in the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. And that it's... And, That, of course, is found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So will you stand with me as we read just a few verses in chapter 5 this morning? They are probably familiar to most of you, but let us ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning in a fresh way. So come, Holy Spirit. Beginning in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. May God bless the depths of our heart and being with his precious word this morning. You may be seated. As I look at Jesus' words in this passage, there are three things that immediately jump out at me. First, Jesus declares to all who are hearing, you are the light of the world. Second, that light cannot and should not be hidden. And third, our, shine, our shining light is so that others will glorify our God. You know, as I get older and spend more time with Jesus and doing life and ministry in his name, I've become more and more convinced and more and more excited that the keys to living out the Christian life are all really contained in the Sermon on the Mount. It's filled with rich treasures of how to do kingdom life. And if Christ's body would allow the Holy Spirit to work out the sermon in our lives, I believe our witness would be transformational. What's even more amazing about this passage, these simple verses, is that Jesus does not give these words to the religious or intellectual elite, but he pronounces them to the crowds, to the ordinary, common men and women and children of that day. These words of Jesus are not given so that they can be lorded over the people by politicians and leaders. Rather, they are given to the ordinary common folk to empower them to live a life that is truly glorious and befitting of the King of Kings. After all, isn't that truly the significance of the Christmas story? That the gospel revealed the good news for all came in the humblest of ways in the midst of the greatest power of Roman rule. Therefore, there is not one of us in this room that can say, Jesus didn't say that to me. You are the light of the world. The question is, what kind of light are you? How are you shining? So this morning, I want to just offer you two resolutions for our life together as the body of Christ so that the world may see Christ in us and glorify our Father in heaven. Just two resolutions. Resolution number one. We resolve to bear God's name well. To bear God's name well. Everything we do as Christians, every conversation we have, every interaction we engage in, every attitude we display, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are doing one of two things. We are displaying the name of God well, or we're displaying the name of God poorly. 
So I ask you, do our lives shine in such a way that others are seeing the true image of God in us and through us so that they just don't see you, but they see Jesus through you? As we begin to unravel this, keep these thoughts in mind. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen my Father. Jesus also said, I am the light of the world. And then as we just read, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Therefore, if people see us, they should see Jesus and they should see our Heavenly Father. This declaration is unquestionable because if we receive Christ in our lives, if Christ now dwells in us, therefore the light of the world resides in us. And so we are the light of Christ in the world. Jesus spoke it, it is true, it is reality. In Christ, we are the light of the world. So what are our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates, seeing when they see you, when they interact with you? Are they seeing the light of Christ in you? Are you revealing and manifesting the presence of Christ in your interactions and activities with others? I want to take a few moments to unpack this a little bit more in the terms of helping us understand what it means to bear the name of God. Do you remember what the third commandment God gave Moses was and to the children of Israel? What's the third commandment? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Thank goodness for forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. But that word doesn't just simply mean using God's name or Christ's name in vain. It literally means don't attach God's name to anything that is empty. Don't attach God's name to anything that is empty. Now to dig even further into this, it's important for us to understand that in the Old Testament, the name of God is often demonstrated in three ways. The first way it can be is, is that it can be enacted in a being who is bearing the name. An example of this is in Exodus 23 when God says, see, I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way. Pay attention to him. Listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him, since my name is in him. The angel bearing the name of God. We also find in the Old Testament that the name can also rest over a place. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, it says, Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a 
dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you. But the one that I want us to really focus on this morning is this third one, because we discover in the Old Testament that the name of God can also rest on a way of living in his name. In the prophet Micah, we read these words. All the, na- all the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk or live in the name of our Lord, of the Lord our God, forever and ever. In other words, Micah the prophet attaches the idea of living or walking in life as being attached to the name of God, the way we live, the way we walk. The way we do life. In the New Testament, the name of Jesus, for obvious reasons, gets treated the same way as the name of God. In Acts, we read how the apostles were disgraced by those in power because, as it says, they were carrying the name of Jesus. Peter, in his letter, wrote these words, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of, the glory, the spirit of glory and God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as Christians, don't be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. We can either bear the name of Christ positively or we can bear it negatively. It's never meant to be a burden to us, but a great privilege and yet also a responsibility. Do you know what the opposite of holy is? It's profane or common. I want you to listen to this for a moment because in the latter half of the book of Ezekiel, we discover that the prophet was reminding Israel why they went into exile. Do you remember that? The Israelites pushed off into exile. And the story can be summed up with these two verses. But for the sake of my name, I brought you out of Egypt. I did it to keep my name from being profaned in the eyes of the nations among whom they lived and whose sight I have revealed myself to the Israelites. I did it to keep my name. Then in the 36th chapter of Ezekiel, he writes about their exile. And whenever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For what it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, yet they had to leave his land. Why were they exiled? 
because they were not bearing God's name as God has called them to bear his name. Israel, the people, the children of God, they were that empty thing. Their way of living was empty of the holiness of God, but filled with the idols of this world. The truth is quite simple. Either our lives will be so full of Jesus, we will be empty of this world, or we'll be so full of this world and we'll be empty of Jesus. The reality is most of us like to be half full of the world and half full of Jesus. Bearing the name of God is not an activity, but the way of living. We are not witnessing or being the light of Christ. We don't have the option to turn the light of Christ on and off whenever we want to. We are the light of Christ. And so the question becomes, do we show the name of Jesus as distinct and beautiful day in and day out? bearing the name of Jesus. Resolution number two. It helps us be the light of the world. I resolve to be an epiphany of God's grace. Ever since I went to our, our region's pastor's conference last May in Tennessee, when I was able to hear our main speaker, James Bryan Smith, he used a phrase that has stuck with me throughout these months leading, leading into the new year. And he makes this declaration, and he says, you are an epiphany of grace. You are an epiphany of grace. And it's my hope and my prayer that in 2023, my life and ministry will radically embody more and more this declaration. And I want to invite you this morning that maybe you will make that your resolution too. So for a moment, let's unpack this great phrase, epiphany of grace. I believe with all my heart that if we adopt or grasp the significance and the fullness of these words, we will be truly a light to the world, a light that will not be hidden, and a light that will shine in such a way that others will glorify God. But I want to begin with grace. You may have heard the acronym for grace before, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. You may have heard that grace is defined as God's blessing and favor we don't deserve. You may have heard the distinction between common grace and special grace. Not the grace that we say at the meals, but common grace is God's goodness and blessing that's bestowed upon all humanity because we're created in the image of him. But special grace is that redeeming and sanctifying grace 
that is bestowed only on those who have a relationship with God through Christ. I love the way James Bryan Smith defines grace. Because he defines it in a broad and beautiful way. And he simply says grace is God's action in our lives. God's action in our lives. That's grace. It speaks of God's power and it speaks of God's provision. So let me move on to the word epiphany for a moment. The word epiphany comes from a Greek word which means reveal. If we go to the Webster's Dictionary, we find out that epiphany will mean a sudden manifestation or perception of the essential nature or meaning of something. That's a, that's a lot of words. Or an intuitive grasp of reality through a simple or striking event. An illuminating discovery, realization, or disclosure of a scene or a moment. We call January 6th Epiphany, the day in which we celebrate in the tradition of the church the coming, the revealing of Jesus to the wise men. Let me help you understand Epiphany for a moment. Just realized, as a matter of fact, today, that this marks the fact that I've known my wife for 40 years. Now, you have to understand that my, my wife's first words to me was to let me know in the beginning of the Advent season that a good friend, mutual friend of ours was killed in a car accident in Europe. So my first expended, extended time of, of, with Elizabeth was actually driving from Lewiston, Maine to Beverly, Massachusetts, about a two and a half hour drive to go to a funeral. My first stay in her parents' house was because of a funeral. Well, after that, I invited her to our, my New Year's Eve party, and anybody who knows me doesn't knows that I can't throw a party worth lick. And I thought for sure after that that the relationship was, in, was done because I was more interested in football than I was her. But an interesting thing happened as, 2020, as 1983 rolled around. I started noticing that she was popping up in places everywhere I'd go. She knew where I was in the library all the time. Or as I was going to, to, to dinner or lunch, guess what? She'd be there. And then I had an epiphany. It dawned on me. I think she likes me. <laughs> and as a senior in college, and she a freshman in college, that was the beginning. And we've been together now for 40 years. When we put the two words together, epiphany of grace, we understand that it becomes, it is the manifestation of God's action in our lives 
which is unexpectedly received by others. I'll say that again. Epiphany of grace is the manifestation of God's action in our lives, which is unexpectedly received by others. In other words, they weren't looking for it. What does that look like? I think of the crowd's response to Jesus' healing of a paralyzed man who was lowered from the top of the roof early in his ministry. You know that story. One of the versions is recorded in the second chapter of Mark, and in the 12th verse we see, when the crowd witnessed the miracle, they were awestruck. They shouted praise to God and said, we've never seen anything like this before. The crowd experienced an epiphany of grace, and they were awestruck, and they were praised God. What doesn't it look like? I might have told you this story before, but what I will never forget, one of my freshman college experiences at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. At some point in the midst of the school year, I was motivated in a moment to be bold for Jesus. So I was talking to my RA in his dorm room, which was located on the fourth floor. To, to, to tell you to this day, I don't remember even his name. I have a picture of his face. He was a philosophy major, and I was creating an interdisciplinary major between psychology, religion, and philosophy, and so I've kind of run, I, I ran around or, or in his, some of the same circles over that time. And at one moment of walking into his room, I just blurted out, well, I just want you to know that you're going to go to hell if you don't accept Jesus into your life. <laughs> Do you know what happened next? He immediately got down on his knees, repented, and had come, a come to Jesus moment. No, that didn't really happen. <laughs> I don't remember his exact words, but I do remember this. I didn't have too many more conversations with him, and I knew I left knowing that I'd lost every moment or every chance to show him Jesus again. Listen for a moment to the words of John chapter 1, verses 14 and 16. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. The Jesus who lives in us by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit is full of grace and truth. We have received that grace upon grace. We have received God's action upon our lives time and time again. And therefore, the fullness of Christ's grace resides in us for the purpose, the express purpose of good works or deeds for others, as we're told in the Sermon on the Mount. So how do we activate this in our lives? How do we become better epiphanies of grace? I want to suggest that you start by 
looking up all of the one another verses in the New Testament. The phrase derives from a Greek word which is pronounced alelon. And it means one another or each other. And that Greek word appears on a hundred different times throughout the New Testament. Start there if you want to be an epiphany of grace. Because the reality is, is if you were to look at it a little bit more deeply, you'd find out that there are basically four categories of all of these one another statements, the way in which we are to treat one another. And the four categories are love, unity, servanthood and humility, encouragement and edification. Love, unity, servanthood and humility, encouragement and edification. You want to be an epiphany of grace? Start living out all of the one, the one in others in the New Testament. And then we'll be, we will be the light of the world that God calls us to be. We will bear the name of Jesus well. We will be an epiphany of grace. In his book, With, author Sky Jatani describes a mausole the mausoleum of Gala Placidia in Italy. I don't know if any of you have ever been there. 1,500 years ago, the emperor of Rome built a tomb for his beloved sister. The small building was designed in the shape of a cross with a vaulted ceiling covering with mosaics of swirling stars in an indigo sky. The focal point of the mosaic ceiling was a depiction of Jesus, the good shepherd, surrounded by sheep in an emerald paradise. Now the mausoleum still stands in Ravenna, Italy, and it has been called the earliest and best preserved of all mosaic mo mo monuments and one of the most artistically perfect. But visitors who admire its mosaics and travel books will be disappointed when they enter the mausoleum because the structure only has tiny windows and what light does go through those windows is often blocked by tourists. The most artistically perfect mosaic monument, the inspiring vision of the Good Shepherd in a starry paradise, is hidden behind the veil of darkness. Now, the impatient person, I don't know anybody who's like that, would leave the chapel and miss the stunning unveiling. Because with no advance notice, spotlights near the ceiling are turned on when a tourist manages to drop a coin into the small metal box along the wall. The lights will then illuminate these beautiful tiles of mosaic, but only illuminate them 
for a few seconds. One visitor described the experience uh, in such an amazing way. And the, the fact that the eye does not have a chance to take it all in. Ah, comes from the sound below from those who get to see it. And in that moment, the light goes out. And there's darkness again. The bright burst of illumination is repeated over and over again. Divided by darkness of unpredictable length, waiting for that person to put that coin in the box. And each time the light comes on, the visitors are given another glimpse of the world behind the shadows. And their eyes capture another element previously unseen. Jesus gently reaching out to his sheep that looked lovingly at their shepherd. One visitor wrote, I've never seen anything so sublime in my life. It makes you want to cry. Brothers and sisters, that's an epiphany of grace. You will never know when you might be that momentary light of grace into someone's life of darkness. But know this, if the Holy Spirit resides in you because you've, been give, you've given your life to Christ as both Savior and Lord, you will be that light, that momentary epiphany of grace where they will see Jesus and our Heavenly Father. Let us pray. Most gracious and heavenly Father, in these moments, for those who have declared that Jesus is Savior and Lord, May we, we know that his presence in our life means that we are full of grace and truth. Oh, Father, how unworthy we are to be such a vessel. And yet you have filled us in such a way that we too are light to this world. Father, forgive us when we've not bared the name of God well. Father, help us to be constant epiphanies of grace 
as we embrace all the one in others and your precious and holy word. And Father, I pray if there is anyone in this place that doesn't know you this morning, I pray that they might hear the invitation that they could of being able to be full of grace and truth by the presence of the Holy Spirit. By simply confessing their need for you to lay down the idols of this world that they've been chasing and to just simply ask in the depths of their heart Jesus come in as Savior and Lord. Father, help us in 2023 to be that light of the world, bearing your name and in it being an epiphany of grace to those around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.